In today's lecture, what I'll be doing is I'll be providing an, a more detailed ethnographic description of poetry as a social practice among contemporary Afghan refugee poets in Iran, following on from the introductory background lectures that we've had so far. Um, so I'll be examining the ways in which poetry is learned and taught, composed and disseminated, performed and listened to, published and read, and used as a means of communication among Afghans. Most importantly, I'm interested in the way literary activities at Dori this particular cultural institution that I'm exploring, serve to create an interpretive community for poetry, particularly for emergent genres that are still in the process of being crystallized. And again, I introduced some of those in the past lectures, so if you weren't able to attend those, hopefully it won't be too... Um, well, hopefully you'll, you'll catch up with exactly what um, I'm going to be talking about. Um, the poetry criticism sessions that I'll be talking about are a pedagogical forum in which a few older master poets impart the skills of composition, interpretation, and appreciation of classical poetry and the rules of prosody, but they also encourage experimentation, and they themselves have admitted, the older poets, that is, have admitted to being influenced by the younger generation, as teachers everywhere can probably attest. Therefore, poetry criticism sessions in particular may be seen as an exercise in the collective formation of individual artistic agency and aesthetic taste, what Bourdieu might have seen as training in the creation and appropriation of new aesthetic codes, and Karen Barber might describe as the mutual shaping of new genres and new publics through the creative mediation of poets. So what I'll begin with is um, just a, a description of a typical life of a poet and the ways in which they first learn uh, or become interested in poetry. The grasp of meter, rhyme, vocabulary and the stylistic conventions that are the building blocks of poetry is not something that comes automatically, but it's not necessarily taught formally or learnt consciously either. The life histories of the poets I interviewed revealed that most of them grew up in environments where poetry was read or recited and enjoyed from a young age, and this exposure trained their ears to the rhythms and conventions of classical verse. This was especially true of those whose fathers had been literate, but in some cases non-literate oral poets, including women, um, back in Afghanistan. Some poets mentioned that their first contact with the poetic sweetness of the Persian language was with the lullabies sung by their mothers, and others mentioned relatives who were gifted composers of folk poetry. Only one poet among um, my entire sample, Muhammad Qasim Qasimi, was born into a family with a long literate poetic tradition in the city of Herat in Afghanistan. Qambar Ali Tabesh, who was born in a Hazara village in Ghazni province in Afghanistan in 1969, and learned literacy from a book of Hafez in the religious school known as a maktab in that, in that village, gave this account of the environment in which he and many others learned to appreciate poetry. In our village, on winter evenings, the people would gather in the mosque or one of the houses, and two or three people who could read would read books of poems and stories, including the classical romances and epics such as the Shahnameh Ferdowsi. They read one of these, and I too, since I'd learned to read early and apparently had some talent, they would ask me to read these poems and interpret them. So my first interest in and fam familiarity with poetry began from there. Those born or raised mostly in Iran, too, often reported being, in being encouraged by their parents to recite poetry from memory. Elias Alavi, for example, 
described how he and his siblings were encouraged to perform for guests. At home, I remember we used to have a lot of guests. All of our neighbours used to say, your house is a caravanserai. And when we were children, Dad used to say, whatever you know how to do, whether it's poetry or drama, do it in front of the guests. And we used to climb up onto the windowsill and recite whatever we knew. We recited poetry, not our own, but things we'd memorised. We told jokes, things like that, and everyone would laugh. Literature classes at school were mentioned as an encouragement by some and as completely irrelevant by others. A young female poet called Moral Tahiri, for example, complained that the approach to teaching literature at her high school had not been scholarly or given much importance, but just teachers repeating canned and cliched words. Instead, she learned to appreciate poetry from the Saadi that her father, a labor originally from Herat, loved to read and recite, and the Hafez beloved by her mother. Like thousands of other Persian-speaking youth, she herself entered adolescence, finding comfort in the words of the mid-20th century Iranian female poet Farooq Farooqzad, most of whose divan, or collected works, she had memorized by the age of 14. Nonetheless, the Iranian school curriculum does play a major role in familiarizing children with poetry, since school textbooks are full of classical as well as modern Persian poetry, and children are frequently asked to memorize poems for homework. Many poets told me that they first began to write or compose verses of their own in their teens, often in the first flush of romantic feeling or other intense emotions, although most of them added modestly, I don't know if I would call it poetry today. These compositions were not uh, not uncommonly addressed to classmates of the same sex and usually were not shared with more than a few confidants. The next step in becoming a poet for contemporary Afghans in Iran usually involved developing an awareness, often through others' encouragement, of the fact that they were particularly talented, perhaps, and gravitating towards other poets in literary circles or associations of varying degrees of formality. Other platforms for young poets included included school pupils' state or nationwide competitions, which enabled Afghan poets from different cities to meet for the first time in a literary context. Young Afghan poets have done very well in recent years in annual Iranian festivals of literature held around the country. The most active and successful poets, or those most determined to have a poetic career, usually try to develop a personal relationship with with one of the older Afghan poets who is accorded the title of Ostad in in Iran today, um, including Sayyid Abu Talib Muzaffari, who I've mentioned before, and Muhammad Qasim Qasimi. Ustad, meaning maestro or teacher, in this case, is not a title which is conferred by any institution, although the word for a university professor is the same, um, but that would be through an entirely different process. Instead, it represents a collective consensus that the person in question has achieved a high level of proficiency and renown in their field, and it's also relational. A master poet is not necessarily addressed by the title Ostad by all persons at all times, and one may recognize someone as one's Ostad or not. An Ostad is treated with the appropriate respect. Even a speaker on stage will nod in greeting and place his hand on his heart, partly rising from his chair if seated, if his Ostad enters an auditorium while he's speaking. Muzaffari and Kazimi are the spiritual, scholarly, and artistic godfathers, so to speak, of the Afghan literary scene in Iran. They're involved in publishing and editing, they're prolific critics, they organize criticism sessions and attend Iranian and Afghan poetry readings and festivals, 
and they organise lectures on various literary themes as well, and quite informal classes too sometimes. As such, they are not only Ostad, but also Sahib Nazar, the keepers of opinion, people whose views on important issues count. In Mashhad, a circular of regulars between 15 and 20 people has developed at the Doradari Cultural Institute around the person of Muzaffari and Kazemi, although the latter is less frequently present. And they participate almost every week in the Friday poetry criticism sessions. They write articles for or assist in preparing the journal, the in-house journal for publication, for example, by transcribing interviews or doing the page layout. And generally, they just drop by the office in their free time to drink tea and chat with anyone who's around. A few of them are entrusted with answering phones or keeping the keys when Mozaferi's not there. Several of them have taken turns as moderators of the poetry criticism sessions, and they've been asked to prepare and deliver lectures on various themes. The respect accorded to Muzaffari means that families' concerns about the gender mixing of unmarried youth are usually allayed, and young women are able to participate in these activities just as actively as men, although not without certain restrictions on their movements. And so... For some, the office has become their second home, where they might go just to nap or catch up with their friends, pray in one of the back rooms, play chess, or just sit around on slow days, as you can see in this picture. Now, there are other important sides to the sociality of the centre, which are not necessarily all connected to poetry in a direct way. For example, commensality, travel, and shared outings are also very important. And the regular attendees are invited to special meals in the centre, for example, iftar or fast-breaking meals during Ramadan, which they all chip in um, to pay for and prepare, so that the centre's kitchen is in many ways the heart of the enterprise. And even young men are often roped into helping out with cooking. A large kettle is almost constantly on the go on a gas stove, and endless cups of black tea are served to visitors and regulars alike. And some visitors who have good news come with boxes of Danish pastries like that, um, which is, again, a tradition, a form of of hospitality to whenever anyone needs to celebrate good news, such as passing their exams or getting married. Um, And he really shouldn't be eating them because he has diabetes, but never mind. (laughs) Among the social highlights for the poets, however, are day trips to the mountain valleys outside Mashhad, a time-honoured practice common among urban Iranians wishing to leave behind the bustle of the city and relax in a natural setting. Strict codes of behaviour are also relaxed somewhat when they're out in nature, as you can see, as girls dress more colourfully and wear looser headscarves, um, although they're not quite as liberal as some of the Iranian um, groups that I sometimes went to the mountains with, in which case many of the more secular girls simply remove their headscarves um, because nobody's there to uh, invigilate them. Um, but in this case, most of these young women um, are in a society that's a little bit more conservative, so the most they'll do is be a sort of more colourful and slightly more loosely dressed. And um, another aspect of this relaxation of, of kind of more regulated and controlled behavior is that whenever there's a natural water source around, um, generally quite a lot of horsing around ensues, um, as you can see in this picture. And there are games of volleyball and badminton, and scrambling up the steep mountain slopes is quite a popular pastime.
And all of this is usually followed by a picnic lunch and more tea steeped over an open fire, as you can see in this picture. As such, even though the main goal of these trips is wholesome fun for a group of young people who are usually deprived of most opportunities to have it, this is a good example of a liminal setting outside the framework of everyday life that engenders what Turner calls communitas and encourages greater trust and intimacy to develop among the members of the group, a factor that's very important for the topics of my next two lectures on love and the limits of appropriate self-expression in poetry, respectively. So how do young people view poets and their role in society? A number of poets told me that from a young age they were introverted. They would say, I was sort of always on my own in a corner somewhere, and perceived as crazier than other people, spending time by themselves, playing in the mud, or working long hours alone at solitary jobs as, such as carpet weaving to support their families. I frequently heard the opinion that poets are strange people, One friend, an editor with a student magazine, grumbled when she heard that a young poet we both knew had been elected as her managing editor. He's a poet. I don't know how good his managerial skills will be. While many young Afghans I knew suffered from depression, it was particularly noticeable among poets, some of whom stayed up all night reading, writing and listening to music and then sleeping all day. In fact, it was my impression that some poets, although by no means all, played up their disorganization and lack of punctuality and seemed not to be too apologetic for them, as if society was a little more forgiving of their flaws out of respect for their art. This, to some extent, echoes Steve Caton's observation in Yemen of the belief that, quote, the poet suffers more than the rest of mankind by having to forego sleep and peace of mind, unquote. Poets themselves told me that they most definitely were different from ordinary people, more sensitive, with more acute perception of people and of the world. Indeed, female poets, perhaps still feeling the need to justify their relatively recent large-scale participation in poetic activities, often played up these qualities, claiming that women naturally possessed them to a greater degree than men, and could thus be better poets. Mahbube Ebrahimi, one of the organizers of the Afghan Literary Festival that takes place every year in Tehran, and a well-known poet in her own right, said that the, the quite strong showing of young women in the festival was due to their superior poetic ability. The quality of the women's work was much higher than, of the men, she, than that of the men, she said. Because of their refined visions of life, the natural world and their surroundings, and their feminine sense and perception... Women interact with their surroundings more comfortably and easily, and these encounters are expressed in their poetry. More than a natural disposition, perhaps, poetic training itself was seen to develop certain qualities among poets, an ability to see through social convention and to observe and gain a more profound insight into one's own and others' inner lives. One young poet called Elias Alavi, um, who was one of the more depressed ones, Uh, did not see it all very positively, though. The most important change created by poetry in my life, he said, has been this. Something like writing poetry brings you closer to yourself. You understand yourself better. For me, this has been more of a bad thing. Before this, you didn't really... You were a more ordinary person. You were happy with your friends, you laughed and so on. You had a simple life. After it, you... It's as if you interfere with your own darun, meaning your inner self both your darun and the darun of others. When, for example, your friend lies to you, you realize he's telling a lie, and it's difficult for you to put on an act in front of him, say that you believe it. It's a bit difficult for you. 
and then, so to say, you realise how far you've sunk, that you've fallen into a hole. This makes continuing on with your life as it was before a bit difficult. Although other arts and media are gaining in importance and poetry of this group has lost its popular audience, as I discussed in the last lecture, the poet intellectual still considers him or herself to have an important social role to play in educating people, for example, in laying the spiritual and intellectual groundwork for, if not necessarily the practice of, the reconstruction of Afghanistan. But they do acutely feel this sort of loss of their popular audience, again, that I um, mentioned on Tuesday, and it's a bit of a paradox. They feel they need to enlighten the masses, but they feel removed from the masses at the same time, and they're not always sure how they can bridge this gap. So next I'll turn to, having looked at the social life of a poet, I'll look at the social life of a poem and its emergence and circulation in society. So having absorbed, unconsciously or through study, the principles of vazn, meter, and qafier, or rhyme, a poet will begin to compose when the appropriate inspiration strikes. Muzaffari described this process to me as follows, noting the unconsciousness and spontaneity of the original inspiration while stressing the creative autonomy of the poet. My method of writing poetry is not such that I sit down somewhere and pick up a pen and write a poem. Stories, yes, I sit down and write stories or articles. But poetry, several couplets at a time in an unconscious, very natural way from an ordinary incident, an ordinary feeling, come to me and I write them down. Whether they come in my sleep or at work or on a bus, wherever I may be, I write them down and then I complete and perfect it. The coming of a poem, the process of a poem, is very natural in my mind. And I think that these things don't need any external factors. Rather, it's just those inner feelings of a person that combine with his experiences in a single moment and flow from his tongue. That's all. In older times, people thought some kind of deities or jinn. The Arabs thought that jinns would suggest poems or that there was some kind of supernatural inspiration. el hamaqaybi as he put it. But I don't believe that. It's not an external thing, but the emotions of a person himself that in one instant cause something of a particular form to take shape and emerge. Elias Alavi, too, described the moment of inspiration as a spark that could be planted by any event. One of his poems, for example, arose after he saw an elderly man's gaze follow a young girl with striking eyes as she walked down a lane. And the poem that came to him, or the line that came to him then, was, She had beautiful eyes, and the old men of the quarter all wished that they had been born later. He was inspired to write his most well-known political poem after seeing images from Palestinian leader Al-Rantisi's assassination on television in 2004. Although the poem itself developed um, in a different direction, it developed into one about Afghanistan. He described the creative process very evocatively, comparing the first poetic inspiration to a feeling, a spark, or an insect that eats away at your mind compulsively until you do something with it. At the beginning, a feeling reaches out to you. It can come with seeing an event, a poor person, a beggar, or a photograph. Or, for example, it can be something in your mind, something that comes into your mind at a particular instant. After that, a spark is struck, and then usually one couplet or one sentence or one word comes from somewhere, and then it keeps on... Like a, we say chore, it's something that... I think it's an insect. It doesn't stop. It keeps gnawing away. So like a chore, it gnaws at your mind and keeps on gnawing. And you can't stop anymore, and you're obliged to do something to it. You play with it and play with it and keep adding words. And this is transformed into a poem. 
And then, when that moment is over and that feeling has ended, when you've returned to your normal state, you can look back at it and change some parts of it a little bit. Um, Moral Tahiri, um, the female poet that I mentioned earlier, uh, also has a description of poetic inspiration which provides an interesting insight into the imaginative work that's done in the poet's mind as she responds to ordinary events in her surroundings and tries to give a voice to some of the most private emotions and sensations experienced not only by herself but by those around her. Today I was walking around the house, she said. My sister's pregnant and she was in pain. I said to her, how are you feeling? She said, I'm not bad, but the baby's kicking in my stomach and it's a good feeling. At that very moment this morning, something came to my mind. The giddy movements of the fetus that is inside me are bitter and purple. It comes at a moment like that, an essence, and then it cuts off. That was all it was. I can't say exactly where I, got, where I get inspiration from. It's not clear at all, but it can come to me at any time, in the street, on the bus, in my bed, anywhere. The spontaneity of the inspiration is reflected in the phrase commonly used by poets, Sher Omad Siragam, a poem came to find me. It should also be emphasized that most poems still tend to be composed in the mind rather than on paper, at least in their early stages. The oral origins of poetry are reflected in the verb used for the act of composing poetry, which in Persian is not writing poetry, but sher goftan, or saying poetry, even when what you're actually doing is writing it down. The relative weight given to the two different stages mentioned by um, Elias Alavi, for example, the spontaneous creation and the more conscious rational tinkering or correction that comes later. So the weight um, given to these two stages differed among poets. I heard some poets asking each other if their poems were more jusheshi or kusheshi, literally those composed while in a state of effervescence or those composed through effort, respectively. While most poems are almost inevitably a combination of the two and there is no great tradition of um, uh, poetic improvisation, which is called felbedahe in Persian, extemporaneous composition, as in the past, I did witness some rather startling examples of original poems taking shape almost automatically before my eyes during online chats with friends, for example, sometimes with near-perfect rhyme and meter that required little modification. Besides these everyday or unforeseen events, poems may also be composed with more deliberateness to mark particular occasions or for particular people. One Hazara poet born in Uruzgan of Afghanistan, who spent many years in Iran, Hossein Haydar Beghi, composed a poem following his farewell with his father when his father came to visit him in Iran and then departed from Mashhad to return to Afghanistan. And that proved to be the last time that he ever saw him. Poems are frequently dedicated to particular people, just called taqdim kardan, to dedicate a, po- a poem. Sometimes... One's beloved, but not necessarily. Um, could also be to a close friend or to someone that one admires or with whom one shared memorable and moving experiences. So following the initial inspiration, composition and recording of a poem, usually in a notebook but increasingly typed on a computer, if one is seriously trying to improve as a poet, one tries to get some feedback on it, either from like-minded friends or from a more experienced poet. This usually involves attending a poetry criticism session which I'll describe in the next section in more detail. And if well received, one might send the poem to a magazine for publication or enter it into a competition. Uh, 
Festival competitions are a good way to improve one's exposure, develop a name and a reputation, to have one's work appraised by leading literary figures, and also, in the case of some of the greater talents, to win prizes. In the past five years, many young and some older poets have also started blogs and regularly post their new poems and other writings on the internet, offering a particularly dynamic forum for feedback as readers, both friends and strangers, are able to post their comments, praise and criticisms and engage in a back-and-forth um, conversation with the poets about them. So once one has accumulated enough poems of a re relatively high standard, one may think about publishing a book. There's been a recent spate of book publications by young poets, the first generation to be born or raised almost entirely in Iran. Most were published by the Erfan Publishing House in Tehran, which is headed by an Afghan, Ibrahim Shariati, um, who, which runs a series called Contemporary Poetry or Stories of Afghanistan, and some by Iranian publishers too, and these were seen as more prestigious but depended on contacts that few actually managed to cultivate, but when they did it was seen as quite a um, valuable thing. So now I'll turn to the poetry criticism sessions, which in many ways were the focal point of my participant observation in Mashhad and the focal point of my ethnography because of that. Um, on a typical Friday morning at the Dorodari Center, the poets gather for a poetry criticism session, which is called a Jalase Nachdesher, literally poetry criticism session, not a poetry workshop or a poetry reading. It's interesting that the word criticism is actually in the name of this type of session. So there's a table set up at the head of the room, which you can see there, um, and two chairs, one for the moderator and one for the poet, although usually the chairs, sort of flimsy plastic chairs, are arranged in rows. This arrangement, I think, is for the short story class, which comes later on the same day. I don't know why they prefer a more sort of um, potentially less hierarchical setup, but for the poetry sessions, it's very much rows of chairs and the poet sitting quite formally behind the, the table up there. Sometimes there's also a plastic flower arrangement on the table, again, giving it a degree of formality. Um, and older poets and invited guests usually sit in the first rows. Behind them, the women, and in another set of chairs on the other side of the aisle sit the men. This gender segregation, however, is largely spontaneous rather than strictly enforced, and the arrangement varies depending on the size of the crowd. The moderator is usually a young but promising poet selected by the director. Um, in this case, the moderator, as you can see sitting there on the right, the poet would have been on his left, or on, on his right, but on the left of the picture. So the, poet, the moderator is, is selected by the director and holds this responsibility for several months at a time. He or she, although it's usually a he, opens and closes the session with a reading from a famous poet, whether Iranian, Afghan, or, um, or non-Persian speaking from anywhere in the world. After this, he calls members of the audience up, one by one, to read their poetry. If someone is new or a beginning poet, which they usually point out with profuse apologies at the start, they're invited to read without having their work subjected to criticism. In the case of the regulars who've read before, they usually read their work once, and then the floor is opened up to anyone wishing to comment, praise, or criticize their poem or any of its parts, often in the context of their work in general, if people are familiar with it. Usually one or another of the ostads who is present will offer his thoughts first. 
Others then raise their hands and add their own comments, not necessarily in agreement with what others have said before. The poet may be asked to read specific parts of the poem again, and if they're seen as particularly interesting or problematic. At the end of such a turn, the moderator asks for a round of applause, and the next person is called up. The only exception to this is during the month of Muharram, or other mourning occasions, when clapping is not deemed to be appropriate. At such times, there is no applause following an individual turn, but the session is closed by a collective chanting of the Salavat, an Arabic formula invoking blessings on the Prophet and his family, which is very frequently used in Iran. Poetry is usually read, but sometimes is recited from memory, although not everyone is expected to remember, and when somebody does, I think that uh, gives additional value to their recitation. There is a specific intonation and rhythmic pattern adopted in the case of classical or other metric verse, um, which highlights the meter. And if I can, I'll play as an example of the applause after a particularly good poem. Um, And since Persian meters are based on long and short syllables rather than on stress, some syllables are elongated rhythmically while the voice is either kept rather monotonous or modulated expressively in a manner that would seem unnatural in everyday speech. Such recitation is a skill in itself and must be learned. I'm sorry, I don't have a translation of that particular poem by Zahra Hussein Zadeh, this poet in the picture, um, because it was mainly just to give you an idea of the acoustic qualities of the poem itself. Um, and audience members respond. It's not a particularly responsive audience at that particular moment, but audience members react to particularly effective turns of, of phrase by exclaiming out loud, Afarin or Ahsant, excellent in Persian and Arabic, respectively. It is the unspoken prerogative of more senior members of the audience, as well as a moderator, to make the loudest exclamations and thus be arbiters of aesthetic judgment. Experienced poems, poets with a good ear for meter, will immediately hear any mistakes, and this is often one of the first criticisms offered in these sessions when someone is reading a, a poem which actually has rhyme and meter. They'll say, Vaznish kami its meter was a little wrong. Persian meters are extremely complex, and there are many different patterns, many more than in English, for example. So they represent quite a minefield for beginners. There are also various rules and exceptions for the suitability of different rhymes, which may be pointed out. 
In their critiques, which usually attempt to be friendly and constructive, the moderator reminds people of this if their comments are slightly out of line, um, the listeners draw attention to language and the ways in which it's being used for creating a poetic space or atmosphere, fazosazi as they call it, the extent to which the poet has succeeded in building a relationship with the audience, an audience here, um, the addressee or audience of a poem is known as mohotab, which doesn't distinguish between whether this is a person reading or listening to a poem, it just means literally the, the person who's receiving, who's on the receiving end of the poetry. So, one of the things that poets will be judged on is the extent to which they're able to express their personal concerns in a way that the listener can relate to and the suitability of the particular form used to express the particular content. It's recognized that such criticism sessions and literary criticism in general are a relatively new innovation in the history of Persian literature, being imported from the West and dating back no more than 100 or so years, as I was told. However, they're viewed as a positive and necessary rational development, enabling poets to improve their work and for common literary trends to evolve. One poet compared criticism to surgery, jarrahi, which ultimately helps to cure the patient, unlike the flaying or salohi that failed poets might have been subjected to in the past. Criticism is, of course, also written and published in the form of reviews of new anthologies or in response to the body of work of a particular poet, which is... That in itself is probably a more Western way of doing it, but there's this understanding that this kind of very public sort of, not really shaming, in some cases it can be, but this very public criticism on the spot of a poet's work is a particularly modern institution. So the following are excerpts from a transcript of one poetry criticism session, which I recorded on the 27th of July, 2007 and the criticism of a poem which was not seen as among the poet's best. And this reveals both the difficulties that the subjectivism of modern poetry still presents for poets and audiences, and the attempts to shape an interpretive community around the proper interpretation, reception, and indeed the proper composition of such poetry. The sessions could be seen as a collective training in both the production and appropriation of what Bourdieu calls codes, both those used for classical forms and the conventions of blank verse. So these excerpts are responses to a rather opaque poem in blank verse by a young woman whose images included a tree, a chirping bird and a blushing sun and seemed to very obliquely hint at some kind of romantic encounter. The comments from the audience suggested that its meaning was unclear and some asked the poet to explain what she meant while others said that it was fine for the poet to be ambiguous and for every listener to interpret the poem in his or her own way. Then a debate developed between an Iranian guest and Ustad Muzaffari. So the uh, unfortunately unidentified male Iranian guest said, if we want a poet to explain what they said in their poem and what they meant, in my opinion it's not only useless but wrong. As Molana, um, referring to Rumi, says... Um, everyone became my friend for his own reasons. He did not seek my secrets within me. And this is um, one of the early couplets of the famous Lament of the Reed Flute, which is the introduction to Rumi's Masnavi and Manavi, the spiritual Masnavi. It's one of the greatest um, works of classical Persian literature. 
And he continues, I think this is no less than, offen than an offence to the poet. Sometimes a poet uses complicated language. We don't have the right to interrogate her and say, what did you say, what did you mean? What's important is what your perception is. If you read a poem of Hafez for 90 people, they'll have 90 different interpretations. We don't have the right to ask a poet, what did you want to say and did you manage to convey it or not? I think that in criticism, what we should focus on more is where, the, where are there grammatical problems or problems with the structure of language? What technical mistakes are there? But as far as content and ideas are concerned, as far as the imagination of the poet is concerned, we'd have to crucify every single poet and say, what did you mean? The beauty of poetry is its multidimensionality. Look, the poetry of Hafez is read by both a wine drinker and by the one who prays in the mosque and says all his prayers on time. If we say something forthrightly, well, that's not poetry. The beauty of poetry is in these very complexities and the thoughts and imaginings that it creates in different people. The very thing that makes you think, what did she have in mind? Why did the sun turn red? It's important that it persuades you to go after what she meant to say. Now, Muzaffari did not quite agree with this entirely subjective view of poetry. He said, I think that the work of, the, of poetry is not quite so free. The poet has to follow several things. One of them is the grammatical rules of the language, another an aesthetic principle, whatever it may be, and another the logical and cultural rules of a society, right? In any case, these are the things that enable us to understand a text. When a poet is constructing an image, he has to keep two things in mind. One is the principle of aesthetics, the other is the principle of communication. That is to say, a poem should be both beautiful and communicate effectively. If these two principles are not followed, we can disagree with a poet if she says that my ambiguity, ebham, is so deep that you might not get the meaning. We have the right to say to a poet, this image you've constructed is neither beautiful nor communicative. Why? Because in the old rules of the language and metaphors and allusions, we use certain symmetries and analogies. These symmetries and analogies and so on existed only because the mukhatab, the addressee, wanted them from the poet. He would test him. In any case, the test of a poet was the mind of his listeners. It's not free and unbounded, in my opinion. Even now, if we criticize a poet, it has to be at these levels too. If I say the sun turned red, I, ha I have to have an analogy behind it to guide the mind in a certain direction. If it doesn't guide, then I don't accept this poet, even if she claims to be the greatest philosopher in the world. In poetry, we want to guide the reader towards something, not abandon him in the middle of a barren wasteland. Because if we behave in this way, we're destroying the basis of language. This lengthy excerpt illustrates the kinds of discussions that take place in poetry criticism sessions and the kind of standards against which poems are judged, which are themselves subject to debate, particularly in the case of blank verse, as with the poem that was read here. Muzaffari here, as in many other criticism sessions that I attended, is insisting on the need to refer to some recognisable aesthetic system, whatever it may, may be, which is necessary for a poem to be an effective medium of communication within a given context. He's criticising the poem that they heard for being too obscure and not forming a coherent, meaningful series of images in the listener's mind. But the guest is clearly knowledgeable about classical and modern poetry, and readily drops poetic quotes into his speech to emphasize his authority and support his argument. Later, Muzaffari urges the poet to expand her vocabulary and broaden the range of images she uses. 
In other sessions, too, I could observe a trend in which younger poems, poets read poems with obscure metaphors that did not readily convey their intentions to the audience. Older poets like Muzaffari regularly emphasized the need for the poet to connect with the audience by referring to universal concepts and values, rather than to their own subjective experiences. Nonetheless, he also encouraged them to try to develop a distinctive style of their own and a fresh perspective. So ultimately, the institution of a cultural center such as Dori is a fascinating hybrid of two literary traditions. On the one hand is the personal relationship with, with one's ostad, not unlike the relationship between a mystic Sufi peer, um, Sufi master and his murid or disciple, or a master craftsman and apprentice, although these days it's become far less exclusive and binding. And no longer is the disciple supposed to express um, admiration through imitation of the master poet's style, which is what they used to do in the past. Um, and that was seen as part of the pedagogical process. Now what's emphasized instead is originality. On the other hand, um, you have these open criticism sessions in which anyone can participate and offer their opinion as long as it is reasonably and rationally argued. And the contemporary Ostad does not encourage his students to follow or mimic him, but rather to break out of the mold and develop their own original voice and perspective. In fact, some of the people most heavily criticized for the overly iconoclastic form and content of their poetry in these group sessions have been the ones most encouraged by Mozaffari to persevere and find their own way. And that's something that I'll be talking about in the fifth lecture. On the other hand, he also always encourages beginning poets to study the classics as often as possible in order to achieve new things by drawing on the rich resources of the Persian literary tradition. Thus we can see um, this institution as a mutually constitutive dance between individual creative agency and the audience's demand for meaning at a time when the relationship between the two is being reconfigured. I'll move on now to um, a closer look at the way poetry is used, not necessarily the, the poetry that one might, self, um, one might compose oneself, um, but the use of poetic quotations and the kind of linguistic magic that they're perceived as being able to affect. William Beeman has noted the importance of the aesthetic dimension in Iranian interpersonal interactions and has described the efficacy of language as a kind of magic. In knowing how to use the resources uh, of their own language, he says, in conjunction with their knowledge of society and its dynamics, Iranians are able to negotiate and even transform an uncertain world with skill and grace. Though all men are able to do the same in their own tongues, it may be a particularly Iranian skill to be able to carry out this magic with an elevated sense that raises the enterprise above mere pedestrian conversation and into the realm of art." End quote. Although I'm sure that's not unique to um, Persian language speakers or even Iranians at all. Poetry, as the most aesthetically refined form of language, holds the attention of listeners or readers and enables them to tap into shared repertoires of verbal formulas in an elevated and moving register. Mehdi Abedi, in autobiographical ethnographic texts about his role as a cleric, counselor, and marriage official among Iranian emigres in Texas, illustrates Beeman's observation well with detailed accounts of instances where he was able to smooth over socially awkward situations or even transform his clients' relationships simply by saying the right thing at the right time, including 
saying, um, dropping in appropriate quotes from classical Persian poetry. Poetry is full of, quote, deeply anchored association-rich metaphors, unquote, and it may be deployed as one of the resonating cultural forms that give ritual processes efficacy. Uh, and that's a quote from Fisher and Obedi. For in the end, quote, it is not just the ceremony, but how the ceremony is done. It is a kind of powerful magic, not just linguistic or rhetorical, but a magic of cultural form, end quote. And again, um, it's from Michael Fisher and Mehdi Abedi's ethnography. Poetic quotes are an example of what Bakhtin calls authoritative utterances of others that are brought into speech, or what Goffman calls framing devices that prime the listener to interpret communication in a particular way. So quoting individual lines from famous poems at appropriate times is an ability still widely practiced and admired by both Iranians and Afghans. Many people, and I heard of both schoolgirls and soldiers, compile notebooks of their favorite poems or couplets extracted from them, sometimes just an individual couplet that's particularly moving to the person. However, poetry is often considered truly great when it has this capacity, it seems, to remain in the memory after a single hearing. Conferences often begin with appropriate and edifying quotes, and people often quote poetry or proverbs to illustrate particular points, even in informal conversation, at the same time presenting themselves as educated people with mastery of verbal forms and a powerful memory. They also connect their own authority to the authority of esteemed past figures. Quoting is also a way to establish links across one's own interpretive community and to help one's favorite poems to circulate, I once remarked to one Afghan poet that the media were foretelling a bloody battle between NATO and Taliban forces in southern Afghanistan. That was back in the spring of 2007. And he replied by quoting a poem from Mahbub um, Ibrahimi, who we heard from earlier, in which she begs the spring not to come so that the war might not begin. So quotes might be skillfully deployed to take on very different meaning in their new context than they had in their original poem as well. And such versatility, too, may be a criterion for gauging the depth and beauty of a verse. The polysemy of Persian literature allows for great creativity on the part of the contemporary quota. In modernist poetry, which prioritizes individual experience, the beloved is more likely to be a real person of flesh and blood. However, as we'll see below, such poems, too, may readily be quoted in other contexts, including in political contexts. Poetic quotes are used in the most everyday of events to give them additional resonance of meaning in condensed form. At a surprise birthday party held by the members of Dore Dari for Ustad Muzaffari, for example, the two-story cake they'd prepared for him was decorated with the words Ni meyamze Fergane, ni meyamze Turkestan, half of me from Fergana and half of me from the land of the Turks, which is a single line from Rumi's Divan of Shams of, of, Shams of Tabriz. This was as much a tribute to the double heritage of Muzaffari, who has spent his adult life in Iran, but whose childhood memories and literary work revolve around Afghanistan, as it was a statement of the double identities of almost all of those present. Another re recent occurrence involved the appearance of a mysterious anonymous blog entitled Gande Parsi, which means the rottenness or stink of Persian. Um, and this was a mocking play upon the name of the Qande Parsi literary festival, which means the sweetness of Persian. 
And this blog accused the organisers of the festival of corruption in selecting the winners allegedly under the influence of wealthy opium-trading Afghan sponsors. Many people left comments, obviously people who had participated in the festival, left comments on the blog vociferously protesting such an unseemly attack. Many of them quoted poems on the splendid history of Persian literature. So many people left comments protesting this unseemly attack, but none with the pointed dismissiveness and economy of Ostad Kazemi, who quoted a single couplet from the classical poet Bidel. Ta chand behar e bohonar tan zani ha, salah nai sharmi azim pust kani ha. How long will you go on ridiculing every fault and virtue? You are no tanner, shame on you for this flaying of skins. Poetic quotes may also be used in serious public event, public contexts, including political campaigns, for the rhetorical power of their reserves of meaning. And one young poet who grew up in, was born in Afghanistan, grew up in Iran, and then returned to Afghanistan in his mid-twenties to attend university, um, was idealistic enough to become one of the youngest candidates in the parliamentary elections of September 2005, the first parliamentary elections um, in Afghanistan after the political transition. So he ran in Kabul on a patriotic, pan-ethnic, non-sectarian and progressive, um, progressive Muslim and slightly populist platform seeking to attract the vote of youth, women, students and intellectuals. The slogan that appears on the front cover of his small campaign booklet over a picture of, a, of uh, the candidate, um, whose name was Asif Hosseini, is notable. And the slogan was, Dobare mi sozamat vatan. Again, I will build you my homeland. And this is from a ghazal by Simin Behbahani, Iran's leading contemporary poet. It's also been set to music by Iranian pop singer Daryush and a number of Afghan singers. So if one is familiar with the subsequent lines, what emerges is a sense of visceral nationalistic zeal in which the citizen forms an organic bond with a nation and his fellow citizens, a sense which is strong in Iran and which Hosseini certainly aspired to, but remains a distant dream in much of Afghanistan. And the lines are, Again, I will build you my homeland, if need be with bricks made of my own life. I will raise columns to support your roof, if need be with my bones. Again, I will smell your flowers and the desire of your young generation. Again, I will wash away your blood with the blood of my own flowing tears. So according to Hosseini, the poem and Behpahani's works in general were familiar to many people in Kabul, so the slogan would have held a deep resonance for them. Indeed, this is one variation on the classical ghazal in which the vatan, or homeland, takes the place of the beloved. Even without this context, however, the phrase has a poetic ring to it because of its unusual syntax, and this elevated tone also gives it force as a patriotic slogan. And when, when referring to the moment of political change he was hoping for in Afghanistan, he also quoted another line from the modern Iranian poet Mim Omid Mehdi Akhavon Soles. The line was, didor The moment of the meeting is near. The line is from a poem in which the poet begs his trembling hand not to cut him while shaving, and his beating heart not to embarrass him, so intoxicated is he by the thought of his approaching rendezvous with whom or with what is left unstated. And this is an example of the openness to interpretation and polysemy common to both classical and modern Persian poetry. The original was in all probability a simple love lyric, 
but the beloved could be interpreted as an ordinary person or could be a metaphor for a fateful event or even for destiny itself, even for a political revolution, a singularly modernist development. Hosseini clearly meant it in this loftier sense. He imagined he was approaching a tryst with the political destiny of Afghanistan as he had envisioned it. And the poem is, in fact, a perfect reflection of his political fervor. But poetry's rhetorical power to communicate in specific circumstances and not, is not only in the hands of one who quotes it. Although there are limits to its power, poetry in this region has long served as a form of discourse for the transmission of criticism, protest, and entreaty, which can potentially shield the poet from the negative consequences of such outspokenness. <coughs> If aesthetic and rhetorical elements are used skillfully, an audience can be persuaded or, or at the very least be forced to admire. Poetic rhetoric is particularly effective when the poet is able to tap into a general social sentiment, to uncover a general truth and to speak for his or her community. And this was certainly true of the resistance era poetry among refugees in Iran, some examples of which um, I presented in the last lecture. When a poem presents a particular claim or argument, and in particular when it is addressed to a particular person or group of people, it may be responded to in kind, leading to an elevated form of debate or dialogue. Now, one of the most famous examples of this was Muhammad Qasim Qasimi's poem Baz Gasht, or Return, which was written in 1991, and of which most Afghans and many Iranians can still recite at least a few lines. It's a long poem with six sections, and it's in um, a classical form, but with obviously contemporary content. And they encapsulate the essence of the poetry of resistance and exile, and include ironic accusations of indifference on the part of Iranians to the plight of poor refugees. And it starts like this. At sunset, with the hot breath of the road, I shall go. I came on foot, on foot I shall go. The talisman of my exile will be broken tonight, and the tablecloth which was empty will be folded. And on the eve of feast days, neighbor, you won't hear the sound of weeping, neighbor. The stranger who had not a penny will go, and the child that had no doll will go. And this is in the context of increasing pressure being put on Afghans to return to Afghanistan in the 1990s when the Soviets had withdrawn from Afghanistan and the Iranians were saying, well, okay, the war is over, you can go home now. Um, so again, there was pressure to repatriate, but Afghans did not necessarily perceive the situation in Afghanistan as being safe enough to return. And so this poem was full of these kind of slightly sarcastic, slightly ironic and bitter and thinly veiled accusations against his Iranian hosts. Um, although he also threw in a few, you know, gestures of thanks for the, the hospitality that Afghans had received in Iran. So these thinly veiled accusations provoked a series of replies, also in verse, from Iranian poets, many of them, in fact, his personal friends, which were published in newspapers or sent directly to Kazemi. They expressed pain or indignation at his accusations and reassured him of their solidarity, friendship, and shared destiny words which are not frequently heard in defense of refugees in the Iranian media. And one poet wrote, for example, except that in this era it is we who are the touchstone, and let us not forget that we eat of the same salt. This poem became so popular among Afghans and aroused so much interest and embarrassment among Iranians 
because it succeeded in coalescing and expressing the often painful experiences of this and subsequent generations. Thus, Cosimi was able to say in verse what few others had been given the right to say in any public forum, and to engage in a critical dialogue with his Iranian counterparts and Iranian society in general. Since that time, Afghan poets have increasingly contributed works to Iranian national newspapers and poetry magazines, they've participated in and won awards at Iranian festivals, and they've invited Iranian poets to their own festivals. This has been one of the few opportunities for them to present themselves in a con- to, for them, to, sorry, to present in a consistently successful manner a very positive image of themselves as educated and urbane and to vocally express their own concerns in the public sphere.